You're listening to The Luxury Item, the podcast on the business of luxury and the people and companies that are shaping the future of the luxury industry. Here's your host, Scott Kerr. The world's natural diamond market all but shut down at the start of the COVID-19 pandemic. From the diamond mines of South Africa and the polishers in India to the grading of stones in Antwerp and retailers in London's Hatton Garden and New York's Diamond District, each stage of the diamond value chain requires close personal contact and human handling. As a result, the industry was hit hard. In the second quarter of 2020, the sector's two biggest diamond producers, De Beers and Alrosa, sold a combined $130 million in rough diamonds, compared to $2.1 billion in the same period of the previous year. Efforts to limit the spread of coronavirus kept millions of people at home and dented demand in the largest markets of the U.S. and China. The pandemic struck at a time when the diamond industry was already struggling with competition from synthetic lab-made diamonds and a glut of smaller, lower-quality stones. However, there's been some room for optimism. After months of holding steady on diamond prices, both companies changed course and cut prices in August to spur demand and fire life back into the industry. This may have been a good move, as both De Beers and El Rosa both reported an increase in rough diamond sales just ahead of this past holiday season. There has also been a stable consumer demand for diamond jewelry at the retail level in both the United States and China. These positive notes could signal growing confidence and a rebound for the struggling industry. My guest today on the luxury item is Rebecca Forrester, U.S. President of Alrosa, the Russian diamond giant that mines more diamonds than any other company in the entire world. She's involved in all aspects of work at Alrosa's U.S. affiliate office in New York. Ms. Forrester is responsible for the development of rough and polished diamond sales, trade and customer relations, marketing program development and implementation, and market research. She's an esteemed leader in the diamond industry and has a wealth of experience in companies that represent all parts of the diamond pipeline, from diamond mining to diamond jewelry sales. Ms. Forrester also serves on the board of directors for the Diamond Empowerment Fund, the Women's Jewelry Association, and the Jewelers Vigilance Committee. She is also on the executive committee and chairs the marketing committee for the Diamond Empowerment Fund. Welcome to the luxury item, Rebecca. Thanks for joining me. Oh, thank you, Scott. Pleasure to be here. Happy yeah. New Year. Happy New Year to you. You know, I think I have diamonds on the mind, my mind these days. <laughs> uh, <laughs> not only because you're on the show, because, you know, everybody's been kind of living through the saga of reading about the uh, the acquisition of Tiffany by LVMH, and it's, it's finally done. Um, but I'd love to know your thoughts on it right from the beginning before we kind of dive into things. It sounds like it's a great move for the diamond industry. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's been back and forth for so many months, you know, uh, and uh, when it first came out, you know, I I wrote about it actually in in one of my reports, Um, you know, when two very important players come together like that, um, it it really shows the value, um, not only of Tiffany itself, but also of, of branding, you know, and, and branded diamonds and branded jewelry. Um, so, uh, you know, I think it's, it's a very important sign of, um, uh, affirmation that natural diamonds are here to stay in a very important part of the luxury segment. Uh, and, um, you know, Tiffany, of course, is, is, uh, one of the most valued brands out there. And I'm so pleased to see it because, uh, you know, it's important we use them sort of as a gauge as to how they're doing, um, you know, for the rest of the industry. And the fact that they were able to, uh, you know, to to be part of uh, 
the larger group here and, and have this uh, kind of new, new home, I think is definitely a, a great sign for the future yeah. of diamonds. And, um, you know, not only for the industry itself, but also it shows the consumer the, the importance of them within the luxury segment. Yeah, I, I think LVMH is going to do a lot with Tiffany, uh, not only in the U.S., but I think uh, in China as well. Yeah, I, I think uh, I think the focus will probably be very much uh, global. Um, and, um, you know, Tiffany really has is a great example of, of a brand that's been around for a long time that was able to maintain its uh, core values and you know value proposition, but but realize that they needed to sort of reinvent themselves a little bit and become a little bit more relevant for today's consumer. Right. Um, so you know when we recently saw a lot of the the uh, new advertising and the new positioning and some of the new product assortments, uh, I th I think that helped to sort of bring them into you know the the next decade. Yeah. So, so you have a very interesting career. I know you started out in advertising and I always love to speak with people who sort of wind their way and pivot and do interesting moves into completely new sectors. How did you find your way into the diamond business? Uh, well, they found me. Yeah, I mean, I, I started, I mean, it's a crazy story. You know, I, I, I'm a lover of science. I started as a pre-med major and then decided that um, I didn't really want to spend that much time becoming a, a doctor. So I ended up going into business, um, which when I look back on, I'm, I'm actually pretty glad that I did because it's it served me well. Mm -hmm. I, um, I went back and got my master's degree in marketing and started, you know, in advertising, working on cosmetic and fragrance brands, uh, particularly the Estee Lauder brands and kind of fell into the cosmetic world and fragrance world for quite some time working for the big companies like Revlon and Elizabeth Arden and um, Cody Lancaster. And then one day I got a call from a headhunter who said that uh, a family owned business, one of the largest uh, wedding band manufacturers in North America was looking to bring someone from the outside in to create a marketing department uh, from scratch and to develop brands um, and, and a real marketing uh, infrastructure for them. Um, and that's how it started. And, uh, you know, it, 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 I was very lucky. It was a real culture shock at first because very different culture. Right. Uh, then, you know, cosmetics and fragrances, primarily due to the fact that the margins there are so much larger um, and marketing, you know, has been a, a, an important part of that industry for, for a long time. So this was new. And, um, you know, I spent uh, the rest of my career since then in, in one segment or another of, of the uh, diamond supply chain. And if you could tell our listeners a little bit about Al Rosa, I think that um, they might be familiar with your rival, uh, De Beers. Yeah. So this is my second, the second mining company that I've had the privilege to work for. The first one was Rio Tinto, um, where the diamond segment was was a, a small part of the overall um, uh, business. Um, and here with Al Rosa, diamonds is all of the business. And, and they're really like this sleeping giant that not many people really know about. 
Um, and so, you know, we, we produce about uh, a third of the world's supply of rough diamonds. Uh, we have 12 mines all in the area of Yakutia, which is like Siberia. Mm-hmm. Um, have you been there? Not yet. Uh, unfortunately, the COVID situation this past summer yeah. uh, ruined my trip there, but hopefully this coming summer. Uh, definitely, I've been to I've been to Moscow a few times, right. uh, where corporate headquarters are. But but it's always great to actually visit the mine and you know really see the people that make all this happen, and and see uh, you know how things are run. Because one of the one of the things that attracted me to Al Rosa was the fact that it is by far uh, the most um, well. Let's put it this way. Uh, Alrosa gives more revenue than any other mining company back to uh, charity, and um, and and most of it goes back to the diamond um, community where we mine uh, in Yakutia. Uh, we we contribute to over 500 charities uh, that really all contribute to the livelihood of the, the people that live there in this remote area of Siberia, and that includes things like. Um, Education, culture, uh, healthcare, uh, the wildlife. We we have our own uh, nature preserve that protects the wildlife, uh, and also the tundra. You know, because it's right on the Arctic Circle, so it's very important to to keep the uh, the geological composition of of the the Earth there. Um, so it's, it's really incredible. And it's just such an important part of the DNA of the company. And we have such a well um, acclaimed CSR program. And so everything that we do is really sustainable and very well measured. And for me, that was really important because if we look at you know the consumer of today, uh, more and more of them are looking to see you know, where their product came from, who made it, Who's the company behind it? And uh, a big, a big decision for them to purchase is: Do the values of that company really match my own values? Mm-hmm. And the other part of it that was important for me is: You know, there's so much more to a diamond uh, than we tend to talk about. You know, the diamond is really just a manifestation of so many stories. If we look at you know, from mine to market until that diamond ends up on someone's, you know, neck or finger. Uh, there's so many different people that are impacted in, in a positive way with with this, you know, diamond journey and the creation of diamond jewelry. And, um, you know, I'm very proud to tell those stories and I can with Al Rosa because it's it's such an important part of who we are. We, we make sure that our customers have, have the same mindset we're all about traceability. Uh, we are always looking at, you know, any new method of blockchain, um, you know, to, to make sure that the supply chain is transparent and that we have that, that um, you know, ethical component of, of the product that we produce. Yeah, and you joined Elrosa as the U.S. president in 2019, and you brought this extensive background you know, in, as a marketing and branding leader across a number of industries, including the diamond industry. So what were you tasked to do for Alrosa in, in the U.S.? Right. So so it's a, it's a small office, but it's really a multi-functioning office. We, we, uh, we function as a, uh, a full trading 
operation, mm -hmm. which means that uh, we hold um, rough diamond tenders, we hold polished auctions for our exceptional stones uh, a, a few times a year. Uh, we sell polished diamonds in the office to approved, an approved customer base. Um, so that, that's an important part because, you know, the U.S. market is one of the largest po di polished diamond markets in, in the world. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, we have, we have big opportunity to, to um, really sell our, our diamonds that we can say were mined and cut and polished in Russia. So complete mine of origin, complete origin story, complete provenance, which again is an important thing for a lot of uh, consumers today. So we have a lot of customers looking for that specifically. Um, and then of course, you know, uh, to function as a, uh, a, a body that can provide all kinds of market data back to headquarters about uh, specifically the US market, what's happening through the supply chain, uh, what are new trends? Uh, what are new risks, opportunities? Uh, so that be, that's a very important part of, of what I do, you know, market analysis and research. Right. Yep. And also uh, we serve as the on the ground marketing arm for all of the um, Al Rosa corporate uh, activities, which have been quite uh, significant since I've joined. We've actually launched uh, about four different branded initiatives within the US market, even during COVID 2020, uh, we were able to continue to um, prepare and get ready for launch um, to two new projects that are currently now uh, market. And Can so you share I, those projects? I'm yeah, yeah. So okay. we have, um, we have, uh, Al Rosa happens to be uh, one of the largest uh, mining companies with uh, fluorescent diamonds. So a large proportion of our supply of our production is fluorescent. Are you familiar with what fluorescence is? No, I, I, if you can just remind me, I think the last time I, I dug that deep into understanding diamonds is when I bought an engagement ring. So you're gonna have to remind <laughs> me. So fluorescence is a natural feature of a diamond. It's, it's almost like, um, you know, I, I, diamonds also have inclusions. I happen to call them beauty marks because each and every diamond is very different and, and one of a kind individual. But all of these natural features, you know, also are guarantees that, that they are natural diamonds and that they do come from the earth. And so fluorescence is um, something that happens inside the diamond to the molecular structure that actually when the diamond is put under UV light, it actually, for in our diamonds, it happens to be this beautiful blue glow. Um, and, you know, in regular light, you don't see it, um, but it's it's been sort of a nemesis of the industry over the years. There've been times when fluorescent diamonds have been on trend and uh, and that was, you know, like in the, uh, in the late eighties, early nineties, when people were wearing big jewelry to discos and you would actually see this fluorescent glow um, from from jewelry, so a lot of a lot of the uh, the party goers were wearing a lot of fluorescent diamonds, and mm -hmm. then then it became not so trendy, and 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 through the years, the pricing of these diamonds have fluctuated tremendously. To you know, because of demand being in great demand, and then not so much in demand. But there's absolutely nothing wrong with these diamonds, and as a matter of fact, in many cases, because of this fluorescence 
the actual color of the diamond can get lifted, let's say from like, you know, a G color to, to an F color. Um, and so they are, they are quite beautiful. And so it's sort of a trade created thing uh, and consumers really have no negative perception of it. So we decided to take this inner glow and uh, create a brand around it that uh, equated this natural feature of diamond to the inner glow and the inner aura of women. Hmm. And we know that in the diamond industry, there's a lot more self-purchase happening where women are actually buying for themselves. They don't feel they have to wait to be gifted a diamond, that it's okay for them to you know, buy it for themselves if they can. And so the story of luminous diamonds, which is what this has turned into, is basically follow your inner light. Uh, and it's jewelry, fashion jewelry, diamond jewelry that's been created to remind women of their inner strength, their inner glow, their inner aura, uh, and and everything you know that that makes us special and and makes people you know want to actually uh, be with us and be a part of our lives. And so it's sort of this inner secret within the diamond that you don't see, but if you want to, it's there. And. Uh, it's really, it's really been an amazing launch. We've, uh, we've spent about uh, over $3 million in, in marketing and media investment. We uh, have a core group of luxury retailers that we're launching with uh, now. Um, we're getting tremendous press for it. And I think it's really going to uh, force the industry to turn that negative perception of fluorescence into a positive. And our goal, of course, is to, you know, make these diamonds uh, more desirable and create consumer demand for them um, so that they, you know, flow through the pipeline like they should. So let's talk a little bit about the pandemic that swept the globe March of last year. And what were some of the immediate measures that Arosa took across its supply chain? Well, I mean, you know, uh, quite a few things. I mean, I think the first thing that I'm very proud that we did, and it really has paid off. And, and I have to say our major competition really did the same. So the diamond supply chain is a very complex supply chain. There are many moving parts. And I, sometimes I call it like a spaghetti, spaghetti chain, because there seems to be a lot of holes in it sometimes mm -hmm. that, you know, we don't even know what's going on, but, uh, the first thing was really to read the market and see what was going on. And of course, when the pandemic started, you know, uh, March, April, May was really dismal. Um, things just pretty much stopped. You have to and shut the mines down? We never shut the mines down. I mean, we slowed some of the production. I, I, I think maybe we might have closed a few of them, uh, you know, for safety reasons. Of course, you know, we're always concerned about the people. But virtually trading stopped, you know, people were just um, paralyzed. And of course, uh, uh, pricing, there was a whole issue with pricing in the market where prices, you know, all of a sudden were completely deflated, I, I think, uh, incorrectly and probably too drastically. But so people, you know, sort of just get paralyzed. And 
it's the responsibility really of the mining company to, 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 to read that and to monitor that and to make sure that, you know, you're not forcing too much rough into the supply chain because ultimately you will have an unbalanced supply chain and that does all kinds of crazy things to supply and demand and pricing. And so Al Rosa really, really took the time to really read this properly, to listen to the customers and to make sure that we were adjusting you know, uh, what we were asking customers to buy, what we were actually putting out there to sell, what we were actually producing from the ground. Um, and it really paid off because if you, look at, if you look at the market now, we happen to have one of the healthiest supply chains that we've seen in a long time, which is amazing considering that there was this pandemic. Polished pricing is stabilized. Uh, consumer demand is very high for diamonds, which is something else we can talk about. Mm -hmm. And I do believe it's because of the responsible um, behavior of, of the large mining companies, including, of course, Al Rosa, in making sure that we were looking at the long-term picture versus just a short-term transactional period. Yeah, and, and some of the things you've had to incorporate, I was reading that in October, um, you rolled out this video platform that enabled clients to examine yes. diamonds in real time with yes. the guidance of gem experts. So, you know, that was why the are these big things? Oh, okay, yeah, I was gonna say, why are these type of initiatives, you know, servicing the needs of customers during a pandemic become such an important part of how you do business? So clearly during, during a pandemic, you know, people can't travel to Russia. Uh, people can't, you know, come into my office to attend an auction. Um, but yet, you know, as we kind of got out of um, March, April, we saw that, you know, there was still activity and, uh, you know, you can't just completely stop a supply chain. So you, ha you have to keep it somehow moving, you know, in, in, at a healthy level. So we immediately, like many many members of the industry, you know, really had to stop and, and focus resources on all kinds of digital and virtual new platforms and ways of doing business. And, um, you know, luckily with Alrosa, we, we, have, we have good um, technology and, uh, you know, we've had some platforms before. For others, I think it was a lot more difficult, especially those in the midstream, but we were able to, you know, put stuff together where we could actually do virtual sites where people could go online and we would have an expert in Moscow at the, um, at the uh, office showing the rough to them. Obviously it, it took time, but this was a very important thing. We also were able to do a lot of online auctions and uh, tenders in the same way using you know, uh, very sophisticated videos of the stones, a lot of information, digital passports about the stones, so you could really understand, you know, where everything about them. Um, and, 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 and this became the way of, of the industry for many people, um, which I believe was also very, very critical to keeping, you know, the, the health of the supply chain. And as we started to get into May and June, we saw things starting to pick up. Um, and so we were able to continue without physically being together from different parts of the world, which was really, uh, you know, fantastic. Yeah. Do you see that continuing, this pro these different programs continuing through 2021? Absolutely. 
I, yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't think the industry will ever go back exactly the same, you know, and that includes all the many trade shows that we've had, you know, for years, and people were doing virtual trade shows as well. And, um, I, you know, I, I think it, you know, with every bad comes good. And the diamond industry itself, many of us still consider it somewhat of a cottage industry, you know, not, not so big on technology. Um, of course, we have, you know, the online platforms like Blue Nile and Brilliant Earth and those that have done extremely well mm -hmm. and, and the, the trade uh, trading platforms. But, but, you know, overall, it's, it's been slow to adapt that. We're still sort of a mom and pop, you know, cottage industry. And this has really forced people to, to wake up and say, hey, it is a digital world. And um, these things do enhance the way we do business. Omnichannel is very important. Uh, you know, whether you're a retailer or whether you're a mining company, you know, you have to be able to provide uh, different ways to sell and different ways for people to experience your product. The other, the other great thing that came from, from this pandemic is this sort of uh, newfound interest uh, of consumers in diamonds again. And, um, you know, and I wasn't that surprised because historically, if you look at other times like 2018, 2008, when we had, you know, a real economic crisis, uh, diamonds and diamond jewelry tend to actually do well. And particularly here, we had not only an economic crisis, but also a health crisis. And people start to look at diamonds in a different way, also because other things are not as needed or or as important. I mean, people couldn't travel, they couldn't do experiential things. Uh, you know, buying fancy shoes or pocketbooks may not have been, you know, that exciting because who was going to see them. So a lot of it shifted to to diamonds and diamond jewelry, um, you know, as an alternative asset, as, as a uh, legacy, something with inherent value that, you know, felt good to buy, that it wasn't wasteful that there was some permanency in it, which I think everyone was looking for, you know, long-term permanency during very, very scary, difficult times. And um, now, it's, now it's up to us to kind of try to maintain that sentimentality and um, feeling about diamonds and, and continue that momentum so that we, we don't, you know, fall back and, and lose it when, when other things, you know, start to come back to normal. You know, why is so much money being poured into the diamond space? Um, look, natural diamonds are not going to go away. Um, so when we say marriages are declining, um, that may be the case. But certain, certainly during this pandemic, I mean, I think people that were on the, on the fence uh, and not really sure what they were going to do or when they were going to do it definitely decided that, you know, we're going to do it now. And so... Um, you know, there was a huge pent up demand for bridal and for larger center stones. Uh, we saw it. I mean, there, there were definitely supply issues. And we also saw that people were actually, you know, spending more on average on um, engagement rings. So I think, you know, I mean, I think that will continue. I also think, you know, there's a new, always a new generation that's coming in that needs to be educated and sort of taken along the journey so that they do become diamond customers, diamond consumers. 
Yeah. It seems like one of the most significant shifts is the attitude since the crisis began is this emergence of a younger audience. So before the pandemic, jewelers were preoccupied with the challenge of making high and fine jewelry relevant to millennials. And now it seems these younger buyers are coming to appreciate jewels and, you know, with their multiplicity of meanings. Are you seeing that too? Yes, absolutely. And, and that's why also a big, um, a big, a big trend is, you know, symbolic jewelry, right? Because uh, if, if you make, you know, a piece of diamond jewelry that has some kind of meaning that's relevant to how people are feeling or what's happening at the time, uh, it, it becomes very, you know, very relevant and people, people definitely tend to buy those kind of items during uncertain times. We've seen that over and over again. Um, people want to express their individuality. They want to express how they feel. They want people to see kind of who they are and they can do that by the jewelry that they wear. Uh, do you think it's pushed the jewelry industry, which is generally pretty conventional, to become more creative and make the jewelry experience more engaging and relevant to these uh, younger clientele? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think we've also seen, you know, a new emergence of uh, up and coming young designers who really understand that, who are willing to take a bit more risk. Um, so, so I think, yeah, we've become a little bit more diversified. Um, and I, th I think there's definitely, um, there's more, more things for the younger consumer probably today than there has been before. We just launched another brand called All My Diamonds. All My um, Diamonds? All my diamonds. Yeah. It's just online. Uh, and basically the whole idea of it was to utilize uh, smaller diamonds that um, could be, you know, used in, in very fun and on-trend jewelry that's stackable and, um, you know, just kind of every day uh, could be worn anywhere, any, any which way. And the idea was to just make diamonds fun again, to take, you know, the the hard rules of the four C's and and everything that we've done to diamonds and just say, you know what, if you had a good day, why not just buy yourself a piece of diamond jewelry? So the whole brand is about attitude and it's really to appeal to this younger customer who we hope to bring into the natural diamond franchise and give them permission to treat themselves to just something that's fun. You know, good quality, nice diamond, but affordable, approachable, and, um, and actually it's really taking off. And, and I think it's important, you know, to just, just sometimes have fun with it. Yeah. How does El Rosa deliver on responsible diamond mining and sustainable diamonds? Well, as I mentioned to you, I mean, you know, CSR and uh, is a big part of our DNA and everything that we do is measured and uh, it, it's all about sustainability. Uh, we have a whole department that just deals with that. Um, we can trace all of our diamonds. You know, we, we certainly take care of the people that work for us that, that help to mine and process and cut and polish these diamonds. Um, and every diamond that we have uh, can have its own digital passport, which talks about its journey, which tells you who cut the stone, um, you know, where it came from, which mine specifically. So, um, you know, the, the, old, the old sort of stories about mining or the visual, you know, of an abandoned mine with, you know, this like 
leftover furniture and styrofoam cut. I mean, it doesn't exist anymore. Mining companies today are so responsible. Um, when, when you actually create, plan to, to create a new mine or to develop a new mine, part of that development plan is actually the closure plan. You know, how, when, when the life of the mine is over and you need to shut it down, what are you doing to make sure that you put it back exactly the way it was before you did it? I mean, that is all part of all of that planning. And, you know, we just don't tell those stories enough, but it's completely responsible and everything is, you know, the environment is measured, everything is looked at, you know, there, there's, there's no, um, there's no chance that we're, we're going to do something that's going to, you know, harm the environment or the people. There's this perception, this blood diamond perception all the time that I think needs to be addressed. Yeah. And, you know, uh, that's why, Scott, I'm just uh, now taking over uh, the president role of uh, an organization which is near and dear to my heart, which is called Diamonds Do Good, mm -hmm. which was actually... Uh, pretty much started because of a conversation that was had with Nelson Mandela back in the 80s about, you know, the diamond industry in Africa. Uh, and, and the whole purpose of this organization now, which has been around for almost 20 years, is to really make sure, first of all, that we give back to these diamond producing countries, uh, because you know, the industry is definitely benefiting from the diamonds. And without these people, we wouldn't have these diamonds. So whether it's, you know, Africa, uh, India, or the Northwest Territories of Canada, um, the, the organization was founded to make sure that we, we would give back and create these funds. And we encourage the industry to follow our example. And also to really tell these stories, to make sure that we are educating the, the, the retailer who hopefully will help us tell the consumer. And, and we also tell stories directly to the consumer through social media. But to you know, get away from this, this, as you say, blood diamond perception, which was you know, a long time ago. And we were afraid to, we always danced around it. But the reality is we don't have to dance around it anymore because if you look at De Beers and you look at El Rosa and you look at the major mining companies, everyone is behaving in a most responsible way. And you know, that's a thing of the past and we need to be proud of what we're doing. I have to talk about lab-grown diamonds. You know, recently a, a new crop of primary online direct-to-consumer jewelry brands offering engagement rings with lab-grown diamonds has emerged, sort of challenging the traditional notion that the most treasured pieces of jewelry should have stones that come from the earth. And the idea of a lab-grown diamond may appeal to younger audiences who have these ethical concerns or find the price tag more attractive. And I know that, you know, Leonardo DiCaprio is invested in some LGD startup other celebrities sort of voicing nothing. Do you see lab-grown diamonds as a threat to the natural diamond industry? Well, look, there's no doubt that lab-grown diamonds is a disruptor, you know, and, but honestly, you know, every industry has disruption and sometimes that can also be a good thing. Uh, and uh, I think for the natural diamond industry, it was a bit of a wake-up call to say, hey, you know, let's talk about what we do. Let's talk about all the good that natural diamonds do around the world. Let's tell these stories. Let's talk about the inherent value again and not just, you know, uh, 
you know, th that it's a beautiful thing that you should buy. Um, look, lab-grown is here to stay. Uh, I think we'll, we'll see that it had probably a, a pretty decent Christmas. Uh, certainly the market share will grow, uh, but it's still gonna be a small portion of total diamonds. And there's always going to be the consumer who wants, you know, the organic thing that came from the ground. And, and there'll be the consumer that's gonna buy lab grown because, you know, of the value play, because of the price point. And, and, and that's okay. And we will learn to coexist and everyone will find their way. Um, so we just have to see, it's very new, you know, it, it has a new supply chain. Um, you know, a lot of a lot of that hasn't been worked out yet in terms of pricing and margins and things like that, or we'll have to settle in. But um, you know, I, I think it's here. Do you think Arosa and, uh, will? Do you think Arosa will start playing? No, that? no, no. I think we're natural pure to play. the core. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, and that's 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 good. That's you know, everybody should deal in their core competency. So as more countries begin to emerge from lockdown, what tone do you think diamond jewelry marketing needs to take? And how do you position the diamond as a kind of important product of choice, especially times like now? Yeah, I mean, this, this is one of my biggest concerns that we kind of keep this momentum that we've seen during the pandemic. And, and I think it really is this, this messaging that's a balance of the emotionality, you know, the emotional component of that a diamond makes you feel good. It makes you feel secure. Uh, it's something that will last. We all want to. We want all want to feel. You know, things are going to last and 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 be bright and all of that. Um, but it's also the fact that they do have inherent value. You know, there's a reason why if you look back in history, that diamonds were a big part of people's uh, wealth and portfolios because. It lasted, you know, you put it in your pocket and, and you moved on to the next country and, and you had that diamond. I mean, there's definitely inherent value there. And it's things that get passed on as, as legacy, as part of, you know, a family. Um, and they have stories. So I, I think what we've done is we've lost that piece of it over time. And we tried to focus more on the emotionality. And I think honestly, as a marketer, we have to find a way to kind of blend both of those messages together. And so, so when we come out of this crisis, you know, what sector do you think will be the main competitor to the diamond, diamond jewelry? You know, we know there's going to be a lot more unemployment and less discretionary income to go around, but at the same yeah. time, affluent consumers may want to divert their spending to things like health and wellness or um, luxury travel instead of diamond jewelry. Who do you think is going to be the main competitor? I think it's going to be travel and experiential things. That, that's, that's where I think we have to keep, keep our eye out and maybe figure ways to do creative marketing, you know, that maybe with co-branding or, or linking that in. Because I think people, you know, have just been locked up too much and uh, have been isolated too much. And I think there's a real pent up desire to you know, just get out and, and have new experiences and, and travel and feel free to move around. So that's, that's what I would focus on. Yeah, you were saying before that you're starting to see 
you know, sales increase and demand increase. So when do you see the market coming back? You know, some analysts that I read think the diamond sales should recover significantly this year as consumer demand returns. Um, I don't know. If you look at like uh, reports from Bain and some of the other luxury reports, I, it's, I think it's more like 2022. You think 20 next year? Yeah. I think this is, you know, this is going to be a, a repair healing year. And we don't know yet really when we're coming out of this still. Are you, are you seeing any interesting insights now? I think that this pandemic has brought a lot of discipline and a lot of patience to an industry that has always been known as a transactional industry and a short-term thinking industry. And I do think that that is going to help us tremendously in the long run. Uh, it's gonna keep prices stabilized. It's gonna keep supply and demand more balanced. And all of that over time will just lead to greater um, outcome and, and better results for everybody in the supply chain. Yeah, well, let's, let's hope so. So my final question, which uh, I ask all my guests, is the luxury item question. So if you were stranded on a deserted island and you could have only one luxury item, what would that luxury item be? It can't be any form of air transportation or boats or yachts or anything that requires mobile service. So what would that one luxury item be? Well, I mean, you know, I'm supposed to say a diamond, but that would be just <laughs> that would just be bullshit because what would I do with a diamond, you know, on a deserted island? So, uh, no, I would actually have to say, in all honesty, honesty, caviar. Just a lifetime supply of of caviar. Yeah, I think a lifetime supply of caviar. You know, you could add it to some of the the plants and the uh, the other things that you would find in nature there, but it would sort of give you that kind of special feeling all the time of, of, you know, having something a little exotic. Rebecca Forrester, president of Alrosa USA. Thank you so much for helping kick off season three of the podcast. All the best in 2021. Ah, same to you, Scott. Thank you so much. This was really enjoyable. Thank you for having me. That's it for this episode of the luxury item podcast. Thank you so much for listening. If you found this useful and entertaining, I would be really grateful if you can share it with a friend or colleague. I would love it if you subscribe so you never miss an episode. And while you're there, be sure to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It really helps other listeners find us. The Luxury Item Podcast is a production of Silvertone Consulting. I'm your host, Scott Kerr. Until next time.